whether understanding the meaning of words in their time is key to seeking the mind of God. What are you going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. And for this particular Walk the Earth episode, I want to do a bit of a quiz. I'm going to introduce a list of ten words. Had to do a little bit of thinking to get up to ten, but it wasn't wasn't too hard to get close to that. And these are words and or, in some cases, phrases that I think are pretty common, especially common from the Bible's perspective, and in, relatively important. They vary, of course, to one degree or another. And my argument, I think, is going to be that the answer to this question is yes. You don't necessarily have to speak you know, ancient Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. I certainly do not. But even without going to that extent of saying, well, I need to understand the root of these words and do a complete sort of etymology behind it, uh, at least knowing in English what we believe these terms mean now and what they meant at the time that the books of the Bible were written, and any differences between them certainly can be extremely helpful in understanding Scripture, at the very least. And if you view the art of hermeneutics, the art of biblical interpretation, as learning more about what the mind of God may be, then I'm going to say that the answer to today's question is yes. Understanding the meaning of words in their time is key to seeking the mind of God. But rather than just say it, let me work through a few examples. I will introduce the words first and give people a chance to kind of think about where this might be heading. And then I'll go through some definitions and some references. In some ways, it's not unlike some things that I've done in past inappropriate conversations, looking at maybe Thomas Aquinas as a different drummer because of his format. Now, I'm not going to go full Aquinal here, but I will be sort of uh, making an argument, presenting an answer, providing scripture to back it up. What I'm pretty much leaving out is objections and reply to objections. There will be moments in time, maybe more than just a couple, where I cite past inappropriate conversations or walk the earth episodes. Just this year, in the month of January, I did an entire talkback series looking at inappropriate conversations number 150, which presents a lot of my perspective on scripture in a single podcast. That original podcast was three and a half hours long, so I broke it up into pieces and scattered it across the month of January. And then on inappropriate conversations in February, I put out a few episodes, also talk back episodes, looking back at past episodes with reference material, with supporting backup material. So I have, in some cases, answered some of these questions before, but I'd like to do this in a way that if somebody wanted to follow along, they could begin by thinking of their their answer to the question, what does this word mean now? What did it mean then? What are the differences? And then kind of hear it from my perspective through scripture. Let me introduce the words in somewhat of a sequential, almost chronological order. I'll be answering the question in an alphabetical order, so there's a bit of a scramble here. The way I introduce the words now will not necessarily be the way that I speak to them. But if I take a look at the Bible references that I want to refer to, 
and put them in some sequential order and say, well, what is the oldest of the Bible references that will help me define words? Uh, I'll kind of introduce the words from that perspective, from the uh, earlier part of the Old Testament to the very last part of the New Testament. The first word that I want to attack a little bit and try to get an understanding of is day. Uh, I will provide a little bit of a hint, though, that my definition isn't going to come from books like Genesis. I'm going to start with the Psalms, but day is one of the words. Uh, the second word, or at least the second of the words I'm going to introduce now in this way, Sodom, the city. More specifically, I want to speak to sodomy. Then synagogue, Samaritan, the way, helper. Actually, I'm going to refer to it specifically with the word paraclete. So helper is understood by the Greek word paraclete. The phrase Abraham's seed. Rapture, a bit of a trick question. We're not going to find that as a clear point of reference in the Bible, but rapture all the same. Antichrist and thousand. So I'm going to kind of turn these into an alphabetical sort of a reference and go through them from a scriptural perspective. But uh, if I were to just throw scriptures out there, we're going to see references from Psalms 90, verse 4, all the way to Revelation 7, verse um, 4 through 9. Or actually, in some ways, maybe Psalms 50, verses 7 through 11, is among the earliest of the Older Testament passages that I'll refer to. We'll get to them as we go. But I wanted to first kind of put that out there and let everyone kind of get a sense of in a non-alphabetical order, I want to talk about day, sodomy, synagogue, Samaritan, the way, as a concept, paraclete, or helper, Abraham's seed, rapture, antichrist, and thousand. Now, for people who've listened to a lot of Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth podcasts, there won't be a surprise here in that, from my perspective, these words are critically misunderstood in this day and age. And the most common misinterpretation or the most common group doing the misinterpreting are Christians. It is uh, a kind of a, a source of sorrow for me that so many times the people who the most loudly quote the Bible seem to have the least depth in their understanding of what it has to say, making something like this necessary. As you listen to the end of the uh, Walk the Earth episode today, I'll have a promo at the end of the show for the Pride 48 live streaming event coming up this June in and around Father's Day weekend. It is unusual for me to use a promo on a Walk the Earth podcast. I usually don't have more than one topic or focus to break up. I'm not looking to separate the concept of the show with something like a different drummer segment. So there's Less reason for me to want to you know, input something like a promotional clip. For that reason, I'll do it at the end. But it's worth listening all the way through if you're unfamiliar with the details behind this year's Pride 48 live streaming expo. The last thing I'll mention before getting into the answers to the questions is that Pride 48 will also be having a, hosting a live expo in New Orleans this year. I intend to attend. It remains to be seen to what degree I'll participate from a podcasting perspective. Will there be a Walk the Earth recording, as there was in 2015, the first time I went to a Pride 48 event live? Or will it be Walk the Earth as it was last year, or none of the above? I wish I could provide an answer. I don't have one. To get back to the topic at hand, though, if I'm going to make the argument that understanding the meaning of words in their time and having a 
kind of a scriptural context for things. So reading them in context, uh, to some degree at length, or at least the depth of the term um, as it would have been kind of shared at the time by either the writer of of a gospel or an epistle or uh, the transcription of a, of a prophet's story, whatever it might be, that if I'm going to make that argument, then there needs to be some specific scripture quotations to share. I'll riff a little bit as we go in terms of what the meanings are and why those meanings are important as well. But I really do want to focus on the definition of these words and the definition of these words as some sort of a quiz. All the scripture references I'm going to use are going to be coming from the New American Standard Bible. And while I've obtained a 1971 copy, and I'm very pleased by that, I feel like it's the best version of the New American Standard Bible available, um, I'm pretty sure that when I went online to try to get some quick sort of copy-paste links to put together an answer to these questions word by word, that I'm probably using a more recent version of it. That said, I don't find the particular transcriptions problematic, so I think we're okay diving right in alphabetically this time with the first of these, not so much a word, this one. Uh, This one's a phrase, Abraham's seed. Paul in Galatians 3 verse 16 says this, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. There is more on this topic shared in Inappropriate Conversations number 150 from September of 2014, or the Talkback series that reposted that podcast in parts in January of this year. It's important to understand a couple of things, though, that Paul, coming to Christian faith from from being a Pharisee, had a very particular point of view about the afterlife, about the Messiah, taking those concepts very seriously. So when he is saying through his letter, in this case, letter to the church in Galatia, that the uh, the phrase Abraham's seed is referring to Christ, referring to the Messiah, well, he's got this educational background to back that up. What it means on a practical level is that when you're hearing politically active Christians uh, go on and on about uh, the nation of Israel, the state of Israel, and in some cases, people like the authors of the Left Behind series of books suggesting that because of this concept of God's chosen people and Abraham's seeds, that it becomes necessary, critically important, a duty of some sort, a Christian obligation to help the Jewish people rebuild a temple and institute sacrifices because their way of understanding biblical books like Daniel and Ezekiel and the revelation of St. John the Divine Their way of understanding that doesn't take into account what Paul's sharing here in Galatians, that Abraham's seed is one person. And the Christian interpretation of that is that this one Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. So knowing who Jesus is, knowing who Abraham's seed is, is critical in not making a mistake about understanding in our modern era what it means to be Christian, what it means to be Jewish, and what it means to be part of the nation of Israel as a citizen. Very different concepts, and concepts that are largely driven by biblical misinterpretation. Number two, Antichrist. As this word appears in the Bible, specifically in the letters of uh, of John, First uh, John and Second John in particular, you're not going to find the article leading in as if this is speaking to one person or one individual or even 
a recurring composite figure of individuals over time, John is actually referring more to an idea, the idea of being an opponent of Christ, or in a state of denial that Jesus is who the Christian faith says he is, uh, the Son of God, for example. Here's the quotes. It's a combination of First uh, John chapter two verses eighteen to twenty-two, Second John chapter one verses four through seven, and then back to First John chapter four verses one through three. I will just sort of read them sequentially. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, so that it would be shown that they all were not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? That is, Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received the commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the very beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not coming from God. This, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. When people refer to Antichrist or the Antichrist as some sort of a future thing or a contemporaneous thing that before the Antichrist was not here yet but was yet to come and is now coming in the form of, well, usually some political enemy. Obama is the Antichrist. I mean, before that, other people were the Antichrist. Again, usually political figures. John is making very clear here in the letters that he wrote to the church that his opinion was that Antichrist was already in the world, that Antichrist was an idea, an opposition to the notion that Jesus had come in the flesh and from God. That idea was already active in the very first century of the church, and John calls it out explicitly. So anytime someone refers to Antichrist as some sort of uh, newly contemporaneously coming true of a prophecy, they're missing the point entirely. The term comes from the first couple letters of John, and we probably should stick as closely as we possibly can to how John defined that term. Number three, day. Trick question. I'm sure when I threw the word day out there as a term I was going to define that a lot of people thought, oh, here comes the Genesis speech. And I don't need to give any sort of Genesis speech because Genesis needs to be understood in the context of the rest of Scripture. In other words, what Peter and David said about day 
matters here and matters here greatly. We're talking about the rock upon whom Jesus said he was going to build his church. We're talking about the king of all kings who was close to God's heart. If these men have something to share from a prophetic insight about God's understanding of time and God's understanding of, of words like day, well then, or year, we should pay close attention. So, very simple, short verses from David, Psalm 90, verse 4. From Peter, Second Peter, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, starting with David. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. David. Or Peter. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Whenever I encounter people who insist that from a biblical perspective, the word day needs to mean exactly 24 hours and not one minute more, they're missing entirely that the Bible itself explicitly says that from God's perspective, a day does not mean that at all. That it's more like thousands of years than it is a single set of 24 hours. And if we take Peter and David seriously, as I believe we should if we care about the Bible, this is, by the way, true, even if you don't believe the Bible is anything more than a very oddly best-selling piece of elaborate fiction, I think it's very important that we take our fiction seriously, too. In other words, I don't really get disappointed or freak out if a Harry Potter fan is extremely defensive of who Hermione is, uh, what her character is, what she said, what she did, what it meant, that in the context of a series of books like the Harry Potter books, it is important that we be respectful of who people like Harry Potter and Hermione Granger are in the story, what they mean to the story, and that we be defensive and protective or allow those fans to be defensive and protective of those characters. So here we are. Even if you view the Bible as a complete work of fiction, again, perhaps an oddly constructed work of fiction, you still need to take a look at people like David as a very crucial, central figure in the entire Old Testament, and Peter as a very crucial, secondary to Jesus, but nevertheless central figure in the New Testament. And if they've got something to say, then we ought to listen. And if what they're saying is, children from God's perspective, a day's not 24 hours long, maybe we shouldn't be starting literal or metaphorical wars over a complete misunderstanding of the meaning of the word. Number four, I'm going to call the word paraclete. I've sorted it as such, but then again, helper sorts alpha alphabetically in the same spot. So whether we choose to think of this as being just helper or helper with a capital H or paraclete, it's the word that I really need to, to kind of spend a ton, some time on. I have named the Holy Spirit as a different drummer in the very first year of this show. And it was important to me kind of to do so because I feel like from a Trinitarian perspective, your average Protestant Christian in particular, but I think it's probably true of Christianity universal these days, there's not a sufficient level of commitment to understanding God as the Holy Spirit. That understanding God as Jesus is the kind of thing, again, people have started wars over. And God the Father is kind of really a lot of what you hear the focus of from tele televangelists today. But the Holy Spirit less so, unless there's sort of some, so, you know, some sort of a political reason for doing it. I think you need to get back to exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit was, what the Holy Spirit would do, 
And to do so, it's quoting Jesus himself. In passages like John 14, verses 16 and 17, John 14, verses 25 and 26, John 15, verses 26 and 27. To be honest, though, you could read the entire chapters of John 14, 15, and 16 and get a lot about the Holy Spirit. In the interest of brevity, I've kind of focused on just these three sections, and I'll read them in the order that I shared the, uh, the notations. Jesus speaking, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things, and bring to your remembrance all I have said to you. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. The Acts of the Apostles tells us that we should be in favor of taking very direct directions from this Helper. I made reference to this in Walk the Earth number 48, November of 2017, and at my church, we recently listened to a sermon presented by somebody at the denominational level that I thought really did a good job of making use of this paraclete concept. The idea that there are certain passages in the Acts of the Apostles early in Paul's journeys where Paul makes specific mention of in his mind wanting to go in the direction of Asia Minor, but the Spirit of the Lord blocked his path. This Holy Spirit that Jesus refers to as a helper, as a guide, living within you, testifying to you, uh, in, in many cases sort of saying, don't go there, or even, I'm not going to let you go there. In this case, Paul was being sent in the direction of Greece for reasons perhaps only the Holy Spirit understood. But uh, rather than trying to turn the concept of Holy Spirit into some sort of a GPS parlor game, which I fear is the most likely thing you'd get from televangelists today. It's better to understand this concept as helper being more than just a traditional kind of a lazy interpretation of that word, and which is why I threw it out there as paraclete. It's referring to something much, much bigger, much more, if you will, spiritual. Number five, rapture. And I hesitate to insinuate that by going to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul provides us some definition of rapture. Actually, this is the trick question in this series of words. While it's true that there are many words that the church refers to today that are part of Christianese that may not appear as a word in more popular, more common English biblical translations, they're nevertheless there conceptually. I mean, Trinity as an idea seems to be strongly in the New Testament conceptually. Rapture does not. And where people have referred to this com this concept of a pre-tribulational rapture, again, this whole misbegotten, left-behind idea that the people who are living and walking among us, who are part of the religious right, for example will be immediately ghosted off this planet before anyone else goes because they are on some level chosen in that way. And there will be a huge tribulation and everyone will be left behind in that tribulation. And God needs to, to take his, his devoted special people out of the planet first. That notion of rapture is not biblical. 
And the place where most people who believe in this idea of rapture point to undermines their own argument. This is the words of Paul. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not proceed those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice that in the definition of the word rapture at the time that Paul was writing, this, this concept would be more like the joy in the second coming of Christ. Because this, this idea of a pre-tribulational rapture where before the second coming, God is going to ghost his special people off the planet, Paul makes explicitly clear in the very words he uses that we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The dead will rise before the living will rise. This is completely inconsistent with the kind of rapture concepts you get from the religious right or in texts like the Left Behind series of books. And I would simply use the passage in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that are so, that so often cited as, as an example of rapture in the Bible as being 100% or 180 degrees away from the perspective of Paul in Scripture. Number six, Samaritan. Jesus refers to Samaritans in Luke chapter 10, verses 33 to 34. So among the most famous passages in the entire Bible, it's the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But as Jesus was telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, he was expecting that his Jewish listening audience would have a point of view about Samaria and the people who live there. And if it's lost on a modern Christian audience, well, it shouldn't be, because John, in uh, John chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, relates a story of Jesus and his followers traveling through Samaria. And in that story, it should make it pretty clear that the Samaritans were not viewed as part of the end crowd. Quite the opposite. Here's uh, Jesus first from chat from Luke, and then John chapter 4. Jesus speaking about encountering a man who had been robbed, beaten up, and left for dead. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And then he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Then John, later, says this, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I've read translations that say something to the effect of Jews do not believe it is proper to drink from the same cup or eat from the same plate as Samaritans. That there's some sense of outcast in play there. And so I think sometimes we, we candy up the meaning of Samaritan in Jesus' time. That even the notion of traveling through Samaria would have been viewed as a suspect decision, perhaps, by some of the disciples. 
And then for Jesus to be interacting with a woman at all anywhere might have been a question, but a Samaritan woman in particular would have raised serious questions. And Jesus was certainly muddying the water. And of course, as I mentioned in Inappropriate Conversations number 150, Jesus sent this woman out to share the gospel message with the people of Samaria that he was indeed the Messiah. He was the chosen one that their prophets have told them about. And he did so acknowledging the fact that she was, by our modern even interpretation, living in sin, uh, living in a uh, dating marital relationship with someone with whom she was not married, having previously been divorced many times. It doesn't tell her to go and sin no more. It doesn't tell her that her situation is morally offensive in some way and needs to be corrected. He simply sends her out to share, literally, the gospel message. But if we don't understand what Samaria is, if we don't understand Samaritans, if we don't have a concept for what happened during the Babylonian exile, then we're going to miss this entirely. That Jesus sharing point blank uh, his role in scripture with the Samaritan woman was a big deal. Number seven, Sodom. Well, easy answer, Sodom is a city. But I think that gets to the point of why understanding words is so important. Because while it might be dictionary or geography textbook true that at the time that Jesus was walking the earth, Sodom was a city or had been a city, that's not what I mean by it. I want to speak to the way that this city's name has been used uh, in other contexts with terms like sodomy and what does sodomy mean. And to me, it's not important what sodomy might mean to the religious right or to certain politicians or to legislatures in states like Georgia and Oklahoma. No, what matters is, what does God think sodomy means? So in this case, I'm definitely going to quote from Jesus in Luke chapter 10, verses 8 through 12. But I want to begin by quoting, I guess the way you'd word it is to, to give a definition through God the Father. Technically, I'm going to share a passage from Ezekiel, Ezekiel 16, verses 48 through 50. And technically, it's Ezekiel speaking in that if you were here at the time, and this was an accurate translation of this prophet's work, the voice you were hearing would be the voice of Ezekiel. It's his vocal cords. He's the prophet. He's doing the speaking. But they're not his words. These are the words of God himself. So do we have the ability to understand the concept of sodomy and why the uh, the historic track record of this one city is so offensive to the Lord. And can we get down to what is offensive and maybe double down or triple down or quadruple down on never doing that? And more important, while we're trying to never do the thing God meant by the term sodomy, maybe we can drop all the baggage of all the other wrong definitions, false definitions, misinterpretations, maybe even the intentional misinterpretations designed to take a very clear directive from the Old Testament and twist it into something that can be used as a battering ram against a group of people who are, in many ways, innocent of the charge of what sodomy truly means. So let's define this word, because even though this was the last of the ten that I came up with to come up with a top ten list, because ten just feels better than nine, uh, it may be one of the most obvious, maybe that's the reason I didn't think of it immediately, was that it was so obvious, but what's obvious to me may not be obvious to a lot of people. I fear, in fact, I mourn the fact that maybe there's a lot of people at the church that we left behind, the place we abandoned at the beginning of this Walk the Earth podcast, who still have this this older false definition in their minds. I'm still connected with some of those people who did not leave that church on social media, and every now and then you hear the things that they post. 
you know, I, I see their words and I can hear the voice in my head. And it's clear that they still don't understand the true meaning of this term and what God had in mind by sharing, making sure that story was, was shared in the Torah. And here it is referenced by Ezekiel. And again, God usually telling Ezekiel in very bold terms, mortal man, say this, tell this, communicate this very carefully. These are my words, and it is critical that my people hear my words through your voice so that they will not continue to live in confusion. That's the tone we should be hearing most of the things that are shared in the book of Ezekiel. So here's that passage. As I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me, and therefore I removed them when I saw it. Jesus makes reference here too. This is Jesus speaking. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. In both cases, it is clear that the definition of a term like sodomy, if such a term were even used, it isn't used in the context that we use it today, but if a grammatical construct of turning this city into a term like sodomy were true, it would be being arrogant, being wealthy, being lazy, refusing to help the poor, refusing to help the needy, being haughty about it, it would be refusing to show hospitality to strangers who come to visit. Because as the original kind of passage in Genesis was saying, you never know whether the hospitality you offer to a stranger, to a very strange set of strangers even, you might be interacting with angels sent by the Lord himself. Hospitality is what this is about, not a specific set of sex practices that just happen to either be not of interest to the people who are, you know, denouncing those practices, or maybe subliminally highly of interest to those people who have chosen to de chosen to denounce it in themselves by attacking a group of people, largely strangers to them. Take from it what you will why someone has misinterpreted the term sodomy the way they have, but also recognize that if we're going to understand what God harshly commanded Ezekiel to share with the people... We can't be getting the term confused with sex acts when that is not what it meant to God himself. Uh, number eight, synagogue. I shared this one in Inappropriate Conversations, number 29 and 30, going all the way back to September of 2010, talking about prayer in schools. It's the obvious passage, so I'll share it again here. Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. He says this, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you pray, go in your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. 
It's important to understand that at the time of Jesus, the temple existed. And the temple, in the minds of many, certainly in the minds of the Sadducees, was believed to not just be a place of worship, but a place where there was an inner sanctum, a holy of holies, where the spirit of the Lord himself rested. You didn't need a concept of synagogue to be some sort of a church. The church, in our modern parlance, would have been the temple. Now, for more than a couple thousand years now, the synagogue in many Jewish communities has had to function as the equivalent of a church because of the destruction of the temple, as foretold by Jesus later in Matthew's Gospel. But for the time then, synagogue was more of a public educational center, an outreach, a city center, a place of interaction, maybe a place of government to some degree. So you could make an analogy, and it's it's a forced one, I'll grant. It's a little bit, there's more to it than that, but you could make an analogy that synagogue was in some ways a school or a rec center or a community center or a government center or a branch of the church to some degree, uh, the fellowship hall maybe on some level for those who understand modern American Protestant church or, uh, you know architecture. You've got the sanctuary over here and then over there you've got this fellowship hall and you could do a, a, a hymn sing or even a contemporary worship service in that fellowship hall, but for some folks, the sanctuary is really the, the most important churchy place of a church. Well, the synagogue was not the sanctuary. It was not the churchy part of the church. It was not the temple. So uh, two things are important here. First, when Jesus is saying, don't stand and pray aloud in the synagogue so that people will see you and say, oh, look, what a good Christian that person is, or look, what a faithful Jew that person is. He's saying, don't pray in schools so people can see you pray in schools. He's saying it pretty bluntly, as a matter of fact. And the way we understand that is understanding the, the true role and meaning of synagogue at the time. Just because synagogue has evolved over time to mean something different doesn't mean that synagogue has always meant then what it means now. That's exactly the precise form of laziness that I'm doing this particular question uh, kind of to subvert. I'm answering this particular question on these words uh, because of terms like this that have definitely evolved over time. Number nine thousand. And I want to speak of thousand in the context of 12 times 12 times a thousand or 144,000. And to understand what uh, John of Patmos says in the Revelation of John the Divine in chapter 7 verses 4 through 9, it's extremely helpful to understand the context for thousand is uh, 12, for one thing, just literally a dozen, or is it bigger than that? Does it mean something spiritually different than just, you know, two sixes, you know, or three fours or four threes? It's more than just math is going on here. And maybe uh, a thousand is also kind of referring to a number that is so big that you could almost talk about God in terms of thousands. Remember that when we were talking about days, David was making some references to a thousand years in your sight, O Lord. Um, that a, that a day is like a thousand years or like a watch of the night. So a thousand means something. There's references also in the Psalms to God owning the sheep on a thousand hills. And maybe that's where I want to start to talk about thousand from the perspective of some sort of a divine ownership of a potentially large, possibly even infinite kind of concept. So we'll start with David in Psalms 50 verses 7 through 11. And then we'll jump to John of Patmos in Revelations chapter 7. But first, Psalm 50. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. 
I am God, your God. I do not reprove of you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. And then later in Revelation. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. And from the tribe of Asher, 12,000. And from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. And from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. And from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. And from the tribe of Levi, 12,000. And from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. And from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. And from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. And after these I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes of peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. If counting, simple counting, was your full-time job, I have no doubt that you could count to 144,000 in a simple work week. It might take all 40 hours of work to accomplish that, at a rate of, say, one per second. But it is not a multitude so great that no one could count it. Now, the entire history of Judaism and Christianity combined? Well, that's a different number altogether. You might refer to the entire history of Judaism and God's relationship with the 12 tribes as being a 12 times a thousand number, and you might refer to the 12 disciples or the 12 apostles as another 12,000 number and saying, hey, I'm going to use this, this concept of the eternal nature of God's thousands, the cattle on a thousand hills, for example, as being both the thousands of the 12 tribes and the thousands of the 12 apostles and 12 times 12 times a thousand, while literally 144,000 is actually, in the words of John in the book of Revelation, it's a multitude that no one could count. It's as big conceptually as being every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne of God. So when you have what I describe often as the Jehovah's Witnesses mistake of thinking that 144,000 is some sort of a literal number, they're misunderstanding the meaning of thousand from a biblical perspective. David has told us that when he's referring to thousand from God's perspective, he's talking about something much bigger than 10 one hundreds. This isn't math. This is every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the fields. It's all things. It's an eternal number that thousand is simply using to symbolically approximate. So, when you hear people talk about this, this again, back to this left-behind notion that this really small number of 144,000 might be saved and everyone else in the history of the world who has ever lived and who will ever live, who is outside of this particular narrow interpretation of Scripture or popular religious fiction, is out. Well, it misunderstands the, the word thousand in a way that's, frankly, pretty egregious. Finally, number 10, the last word I choose to define, it's a phrase, actually. I mean, way, 
a simple three-letter word is a word, but I'm going to talk talk about this as being the way. And although I put it alphanumerically last, I did so because of the leading article. But when we're talking about the way, we're talking about John, chapter 14, verse 5 and 6, and Jesus speaking, and actually Jesus having a conversation with the disciple named Thomas. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm pretty confident that at least from the New Testament's perspective, John 14, verse 6 is the single most misinterpreted, sometimes willfully and intentionally, Sometimes, perhaps, if I'm more gracious, you know, accidentally and ignorantly, but it is quite often the most misinterpreted piece of scripture. Here it is in conversation with Thomas speaking in, in verse 5 and Jesus answering in verse 6. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where we are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I agree with the kind of 1960s, 70s uh, gospel movement notion of capitalizing way. Uh, way became the way became a, a modern English translation in the in the late 60s and 70s. The way became a, a kind of a casual way of talking about the almost hippie influenced form of young people evangelism at that time. The movie Godspell. Uh, made you know good use of the, of the way in this sense, but I want to kind of bring it back down just a little bit and say that we can interpret a word even at the time that it was spoken in multiple ways at once. That Jesus could be talking about the way as being synonymous with him that he is the way, and he seems to be backing that up with the notion that no one's going to come to the Father except through him. Fine, we can capitalize the word way in that sense. But it's a mistake if we do so without understanding the lowercase understanding of the term in Jesus' time as well. Thomas may not have been naive enough to have been believing that when Jesus was talking about a mansion with many rooms and the way to the Father's house, Thomas might not have believed that he could get GPS coordinates and just drive to a certain part of Iraq and, and find this building. He surely understood that Jesus was speaking of something, for want of a better word, heavenly. But this is also Jesus answering his question in the way he posed it. It's a directional answer. Jesus is saying, I am the way, meaning that if you follow me, you'll get there. I am the truth, meaning what I'm saying can be trusted. And I am the life because the entire chapter is about eternal life. So when people kind of take this section, this I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me, and grant themselves privileges in association with the wording, and say, well, because you know Abraham's seed is Christ, and if I am in Christ, then I am chosen because Christ is chosen. Uh, Jesus is the way, then I am part of the way because I'm followers of the way, that sort of thing. I mean, we're okay up to that point, but it gets very tricky when, when any time a Christian puts himself in the spot of a deputized judge, jury, and executioner on behalf of Christ. And so often you hear this particular passage used as a way of saying, because I'm a Christian, I'm part of the way, and everyone who else is who's not a Christian or not part of my denomination or at least my movement is out. Well, Jesus does not say that. Jesus is not saying, I've established a way, and a way is a religious order, and anybody who's part of the religious order is going to heaven with me, 
And anybody who falls outside of that religious order is obviously out. No. Jesus can save whomever Jesus wants to save. Jesus is the way. And they don't have to say the magic words. They don't have to follow a specific ritual. And they don't have to translate the Bible in your particular pet translation. They don't have to unlearn centuries of English language and speak in Old English because um, King James' original translation is the only one that matters. All those sort of things that have been baked into this, where we've stopped the way being Christ himself and turned the way into some sort of method around Christ, it's a huge mistake. When Thomas is saying, show us the way, we don't know the way, and Jesus says, I am the way, Thomas is asking for directions, and Jesus says, the directions are me. Simply follow me. Does not mean that someone who follows Jesus in a different way or doesn't know to follow Jesus at all has no hope because we've got a set of rules here in John's gospel and everybody, including Jesus, has to follow those rules. That's a ridiculous and frankly offensive concept. It borders very closely to what John referred to earlier as antichrist. Christ is accepting that Jesus is the way. Antichrist is suggesting anything different from that. So the words in the Gospel of John are not the way. Jesus is the way. John would have said that very clearly. In fact, later in letters attributed to John, it's the same John, John would have said that people who have perverted this are getting perilously close to Antichrist. They're denying Jesus his due as the way. So I've gone through ten words offering definitions. I would love to think that maybe none of these definitions were particularly shocking or groundbreaking. I wasn't intending to, uh, you know, cast a new light or break new ground here. That was, that was not the game plan. It's reasonable, I think, for me to fear that I was saying things that there might be a lot of people in my own Christian circles who would have to reassess their meaning of some of these words. Uh, have they been misusing concepts like rapture or sodomy, for example? Has their definition of the word day failed to line up completely with the views of people like King David and St. Peter and John the Divine? It's a fair question. How we use words matter. The language is, as it has been and will continue to be, evolving. Words will take on different meanings over time. Things like hashtag would be completely meaningless 50 years ago. And now they mean something so specific and obvious that it's almost a cliche to say it, right? So the words matter. The words in their time matter. The words in context of other elements of scripture matter, which is why in many cases I've been very intentional about putting an Old Testament reference together with a New Testament reference, whether it be citing David or Ezekiel or someone else. Because in this context, if we understand these words as they're intended, we might have a very different approach to questions about politics, about religion in general, our churches in specific, and the definition of the word neighbor. I've encountered some you know, sorrowful news from people who we went to church with at the church we walked away from in this walk-the-earth process. And it's very difficult for me because I was not in a position to reach out and offer any words of comfort for those folks. I wasn't uh, invited to a moment of grieving or a wake or a funeral service or anything of that nature. And I don't find that at all surprising. But it's interesting to me that some of these words or the concept behind them or other words I could have chosen to try to define, like neighbor, which I I skipped, have really played an interesting role. Misunderstanding the meaning of these things has divided relationships. 
it's at least put a sort of a a demilitarized zone, a detente. It's it's if not permanently severed, created a kind of a, a dead zone between people. And maybe neighbor's a good example of that. If your understanding of sodomy or Samaritan is different from mine, then you've got a group of people that we shouldn't be associating with. That I shouldn't have any promos anywhere in this Walk the Earth podcast or process pointing to an event like Pride 48. And I would say that if I've got to make a choice between going where I feel the Spirit has led me to go and listening to the way we've always done it around here, I'm always going to go where the Spirit has led me to go. Because for me, the word helper is a capitalized word in John's Gospel. It means paraclete, and paraclete means a lot more than just the literal modern English definition of the word help or helper. So I'm going to continue to walk on the path that I've been put on here while walking the earth. And if doing so means that I've become separated enough from some people, that at their time of greatest need I'm completely unaware of their struggle, that simply has to be the way it is. My door is, in my opinion, I hope, always open. But it's always open to truth and to the way. It's simply the way it's got to be. If and as you were led, please join me in prayer. Lord, maybe it's just because of my history and, you know, studying journalism, studying English, being called sometimes endearingly and sometimes critically a grammar nerd or the grammar sheriff or the the period patrol or whatever. But I take grammar and punctuation seriously and Lord, that means I take your grammar and punctuation very seriously. That I know I can be aggravating to friends and family by, from time to time, asking them to be very specific about what they mean with their choice of words and what their definitions are. But to me, that's an act of love. I want to understand what you had to say, even in simple three-letter words like way. So, Lord, help me to continue to be diligent in learning and continuing to learn and not presuming that that process is in any way done, and asking serious questions, not just about what do the words I find in your scriptures mean, but Lord, what did they mean to you? I ask this in your holy name. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. You shouldn't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. of summer, children playing, summer brides having their wedding, the mowing of the lawns. Now, what have we forgotten? I'll tell you what you've forgotten. You've forgotten the Pride 48 June event. Don't forget it. 2019. 
From home live streaming. Listen live. Stream your podcast. Join in the chat room. Go to brightfootyate.com for more information. 